Does employing more members of historically marginalized groups increase innovation? Hello, listeners, and welcome to Squeezing the Orange of Social Science, a podcast hosted by myself, Akinomobita, and Professor Dan Cable. On each episode, the two of us pick apart, peer-reviewed and published social science papers so that you, the curious listener, do not need to sift through pages and pages of academic literature. <gasps> What's up, Dan? Hi, how are you doing? Hey, 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 I'm feeling well. I'm nice feeling fun. good. Yes, yes, yes. There's a lot of peas in that intro, aren't there? Yeah, I threw them in to really <laughs> test uh, <laughs> test this microphone and the, like uh, the listener eardrums. I like it. Uh, do you want to hear the thumbnail sketch of this? Go for it. What do we have in store this episode? It is such a great question. I think it's super timely. It's the idea of if we encourage these people that we historically would marginalize in organizational life and we try to get their ideas, try to get them to input the best that they have, does the firm thrive? Does it innovate more? Totally. So yes. And this was the question that was being researched. And we've got Yang Yang and Alison M. Conrad. And the title of this paper is Diversity and Organizational Innovation, the Role of Employee Involvement. So we're talking about employee involvement here, but we're also, I guess, dancing on a delicate subject. Mm. And I found reading this paper that the language used in it reflected the delicateness of the topic in a sense of, I found it very wordy and careful. Uh I guess we are, what we're talking about diversity, we're talking about difference, and this does provoke a degree of sensitivity from individuals. And as I'm dealing with this myself right now in another paper, it becomes kind of hard to talk about diversity in some ways because there's enough people that are enough woke that you're now understanding that lots of things can be very insulting. And it's hard. It actually is kind of hard. Um, I feel like in the United States right now, this BIPOC idea is something that people are using as a way to say, okay, it's not black and white. It's people of color. There's indigenous, you know, there's black as one category, but we shouldn't treat it like it's the white folks and then the others. And you can kind of tell this paper is what, 10 years old. You can kind of tell they're steering their way through that, but maybe not as delicately as you would do it today. Yeah. And that's, I guess it's a great sign of progress. So if, if 10 years pass and you look at research paper and you're a bit like, Ooh, I wonder like, and I guess it's within any field. So it does, it wouldn't necessarily need to just be regarding, you know, race and gender and sex. But I guess in any field in which you were studying, after 10 years, you would kind of want to look mm. back and be a bit like, oh, I mm. think we could probably do this a bit more justice. It's kind of evidence of some progress. That's right. That's right. It's, um, it's funny that the very difficulty in dealing with this is a sign of progress, isn't it? Yes. That's pretty cool to think yeah. That's a good rebrand. Right? <laughs> These feelings of nervousness, they're positive. It means there's progress. <laughs> very true to form, actually. Right? Thank you. Yeah. So I guess this, this paper was from like, from reading it, uh, I think like 30 something pages, 20 or 30 something pages, a small element of this, this was dedicated to the actual method, yeah. which I found quite unusual. Mm. I was reading and reading and reading and reading and reading. Then there was a bit like, and this is the method and the results. And then there was some more reading. Yes. So a lot yes. of it did yes. seem to be buffered yeah. around the delicateness yes. of the issue. I think that is so insightful, Akin. I think the idea of sandwiching it 
with all this language shows the almost preposterous worry that yeah. people have around saying it right. And it's such a hot topic. It's so timely right now that we want to cover it, but we also, I guess, worry that we're going to say it wrong or, or, <laughs> or make people upset. Yeah. Here's another theory. Go for another it. Another theory is that while the method is good and it certainly is evidence, it wasn't, it's not the strongest of all studies that we're going to cover. Now, what that probably means is they submit it to other higher quality journals that rejected it. And maybe each time they got rejected for saying it a bit wrong. Mm. So they added in a bit more. Yeah. And they got rejected another journal. They added in a bit. So by the time it comes out here, it's mostly words saying the the right thing in delicate ways. Yeah. That, <laughs> yeah. Because, because what they were looking for, and this free hypothesis, and even in, you know what, I'm going to give the listener, actually, I'm going to give the listener uh, the the hypotheses as it was mm-hmm. written. Mm-hmm. Maybe everyone's just brighter than I am. But even in the hypothesis, mm-hmm. I was like, what yeah, exactly what, what is it here? that you're trying to look yes, at yes, here? Yes. So like an example would be hypothesis one, which is employee participation in involvement behaviors, positively moderates the association between the representation of women and racio-ethnic minorities and organizational innovation. <laughs> and what I think they're A trying lot. to say... <laughs> I think what they're trying to get at here is that... So, regarding the role that diversity plays, it does seem we're moving towards this understanding that diversity itself isn't just about headcount. It's not just this visualization of of diversity. It's how are we actually involving individuals in the work and the organization. So the idea here is that by encouraging employees to get more involved behaviorally, does that have an effect on organizations' uh, innovation? And they specifically wanted to look at women and individuals who have been historically, um, I guess, like marginalized um, in in the workplace. And the the involvement and inclusion there, will that lead to more innovation? Because I guess like, I guess the cold nature of it is a lot of businesses, they aren't set up for diverse like the end product mm-hmm. isn't diversity that's right oh no like the end product that's is right. here's some shoes or yep. here's a car or yes. here's a service yes and i think what's so interesting about this is the theory is that when you get diverse thinking and you get diverse experiences and you get representation of your customer group the theory is that when you're having a business meeting it leads to a better business meeting essentially yep. it leads to people questioning each other's assumptions more it leads to like establishing a more dynamic conversation that yields better ideas. That That's the theory and that's the thinking. And so the thinking for a long time has been the more you can match your customer base and their diversity, and the more in a room you can get people from different walks of life, different race backgrounds, different religions, all these sort of differences, that that can kindle innovation. And that's really... That's a pretty straightforward argument, but it's kind of hard to test because, as you said, it isn't always about the percentages of people that have been historically disadvantaged. It might be more like, are they also given a voice? Because if you have a large number of folks, but they're sort of all at the bottom without power, and then you're not saying, we really want to hear your thoughts and ideas, the numbers could actually lie quite a bit. Yeah. They wouldn't yield the fruit in a meeting if none of them were actually in the meeting. They're like cleaning the floor, like 
stocking the shelves. Yep. They're not making the decisions. Yeah. And speaking of the floor, they use the term the sticky floor uh, in this paper. And do you, do you want to say a bit about the the sticky floor and what's up with that? Well, yeah, exactly. Well, the opposite of the sticky floor is the glass ceiling. And it's that idea that it's really hard to break through to the upper echelons of organizational life and become, yeah, you become a manager, but it's hard to become a senior leader. And that's something there's a whole literature on the glass ceiling. This is more like for some groups, it's hard to get even one or two steps up. They end up having almost no voice in the organization because they're doing kind of the grunt work and they're told, but they're not contributing their voice. Yeah. And there was some interesting contributions in this paper as to why that is. So there's this idea of, how do I put this? So within an organization, the, 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 I guess the culture. Mm. So they refer to it as, I believe, like knowledge, skills, and abilities. abilities. KSA. KSA. So without that, it's difficult to rise within an organization, but the knowledge, skills, and abilities also happen to be like resources which are hoarded by a specific group. And that would be the the privileged group within the organization. That's right. So even if you say to yourself, okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to build up our organization from the ground up and make it more diverse and produce these opportunities. So we start employing individuals just by the nature of the culture. It becomes a sticky floor in itself where it's a bit like the onboarding and also the continuous development of those individuals does need to be considerate of are they also being given the knowledge, exactly. skills, and ability that allow someone to ascend from exactly. the sticky floor? Exactly. I think that that's really well put. And I think that the difficulty in all of that is why this has been hard to test. To really get your arms around the ideas and then put that into numbers that allow a test of hypothesis, it ended up being this paper being a three-way interaction. I don't know if you know what that means. Please enlighten me. Oh, God, it's a lot. I can... It's extremely complex. So here's the way it goes. What you'd really want to say in the simplest of all cases is if you have more diversity, it's going to lead to more innovation. Yep. Okay. But because of what we just said, now we also have to model their um, their ability to give their new voices and ideas yep. based on like participation programs. And that's one of the things in the theory section they really build in here, which is we have to be able to have an index of how much the organization is trying to get those people's voice, trying to get their new ideas. So that means that there's an interaction between it's not only diversity, but it's also the matter that they've been asked, that this is an organization that's given um, a welcome mat to their ideas. Yeah. But even that isn't enough. The third thing that has to be in place is like consistency that it's not just managers that are diverse that are given that opportunity, but also the people on the floor. And if the floor is sticky, we wouldn't expect that two-way interaction to be there. By the time you start modeling all this, Akin, it's kind of a mess. It's really, really hard to interpret that all. And I wonder a little bit if that's not why the front end is quite long and convoluted Mm. because they're trying to make that extremely complex argument and build up to the data set that maybe isn't the best one in the whole world. Yeah, it's I I guess sometimes within 
society, well, within the world, looking at how these fractals do emerge. So you have a duo here um, in Alison and Yang who wish to produce some science regarding diversity and whether or not it can lead to innovation. And the front end of it has to be kind of like really like, well, a lot of work has to go into it. And I guess just in terms of like, intellectual resources, time resources, basically all of the resources that go into developing this. So if we take that kind of fractal and then apply that to an organization that's like, yo man, we trying to sell socks. Yes. Yes. And they're telling me that in order to like move more socks, I need to employ this group and then also give them these skills, this knowledge, these abilities, this doc. And I have to push that the whole way down. Yeah. I can't just do that training at middle level management levels. This has to be the whole way down to the folks that are putting boxes on shelves. That's kind of what the implication would be. Yeah. And that's great from the perspective of balancing society. But boy, number one, the idea of testing it becomes actually kind of hard to actually get the data. Yeah. And then you brought up a second point, which is if the implication to an organization is here are the marching orders, you need to do this, 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 and this. They're like, well... I mean, that might get us a bit more innovation, but we actually have to like get the prices on the boxes too. Right? <laughs> I know. Like the work has to get done in the meantime. That's pretty interesting. Do you want um so anything else we want to say about the front end stuff before we dive into like the method and what there is there any like here's something that intrigued me. We don't have to go on and on about this, but I was intrigued by this um social closure social closure theory. And it suggests that powerful groups hoard resources so that like, you get this in-group social network that wants to maintain their higher status and their material outcomes. Yep. And like this is one of these things that's hot. It is really hot. I mean, <laughs> they probably aren't admitting they're wanting that for the most part. Yes. And uh, many of them, I'm going to say, aren't even admitting it to themselves. Yeah. But when you look at the trends of data, that's what's happening. Yeah. This they- is... Oh, yeah, yeah. It gets me. It gets me quite excited because it's. I guess it's a hot topic because the heat of it suggests that there is an appetite for us to collectively move beyond this as societies, you know, as organizations, as societies, and also that that heat produces. I guess it's kind of like a production of the the difficulty of what it is that we're we're going through as well. And I, even as I say that, I'm kind of like talking myself um, a bit in circles. I need a reminder because what was the social closure? I mean, the bottom line. Yeah, yeah it, yes, it's, yeah. It's like listen, you hoard things like job opportunities. Yeah. You yeah. hoard training. Like earlier when you were talking about KSAs, like giving people knowledge, skills, yeah. and abilities. When you look at the actual data in sociology, there is an extremely strong case to be made that basically companies and senior leaders that got loads of power, they just replicate themselves. Like, yes. Yeah, yeah this this was the point. Yeah, yeah thank you very much because I'm kind of losing the thread there a bit. It's, I guess, living in a complex society where in some instances where we're clearly more advanced intellectually than we were X amount of years ago. We, we are advancing. We, we are advancing. <laughs> but there does seem to be something hardwired in us where we're finding it difficult, the challenge of embracing the the differences because they they reference here the the difference between how homogenous groups operate and heterogeneous mm. heterogeneous 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 yeah. groups yeah. operate yeah. so like even within if we kind of expand that diversity you have a 
or, or even contract it, should I say, yeah. you have a department and let's say the department is marketing. There's a challenge of getting marketing to have conversations with sales, with HR, with administrative. Like there's a yeah. difficulty yeah. there and there's something that's quite protective. Yes. Where there's, there still yeah. seems to be this element of us where yeah. we're trying to remain in this protective safe space. Yeah. Whereas the innovation is brought forth from freedom and that freedom might be to fail, but also to embrace difference, different ideas. And without embracing the freedom, we remain in a space of safety. And as long as we remain in that space of safety, the innovation is truncated. Isn't really. that interesting? And boy, I think we have to wrap this up. I actually find this part really, really interesting. This business about sometimes having lots of diversity feels crap, but mm -hmm. works. That is to say, when you are all the same and you come from the same background and you're the same race and you have the same religion, you're the same age, it can be really comfortable feeling to be in that in-group. Yes. When you throw a lot of diversity in there, a lot of times it feels like you're fighting a lot because you're like disagreeing about basic assumptions. Yeah. It doesn't feel as good. So a lot of times in the research, people report feeling crap when they're having these diverse meetings and trying to inject different perspectives in. But then what pops out a year or two years later are better products and more innovative solutions, better thinking, better decisions. So it's a, you just brought up a really interesting point, which is sometimes diversity feels bad, but works. Yes. That's really interesting. Yeah. Uh, with a, with a, I guess we can sh uh, cover some of the, uh, let's get, let's the, get into that method, the method because they, they got in touch with like 183 organizations here. And this was then a survey that was conducted with 1,289 employees. Yep. And they were looking at employee involvement. And so they were asking specific questions, which were around how individuals participate with things such as completing sur uh, employee surveys, offering their suggestions, receiving job rotation or cross training, being informed about important issues, participating in tasks and a couple more things that kind of like go on here as well. So what were some of the things that they were looking yeah, to yeah. extract from this questionnaire then? Well, boy, okay. A couple of things I need to mention here. Go for it. One is a good thing, which is they got data from this. It's called the Workforce Employee Survey. And that's all collected by like the can Canadian government. And that was spread across two years. And they use a stratified sampling method. That's pretty world-class stuff. Because that means that you're basically going up to the whole field. You're getting loads and loads of data across two different times. Now, all impressive. Then they started like peeling off. Okay, we're not going to look at it when these people replied or we need at least four people to have responded. And then they sort of winnowed it and winnowed it and winnowed it down. And some of those decisions, well, I don't know how supportable they would have been. And I also don't know if you change their decisions a little bit. Like if they looked at surveys where HR managers completed it and not just employees, would that have changed? And if it had changed the results, how do I know that they did it the right way? Do you know what I mean? It, it, it felt particular to me. It felt really particular. Like, we're only going to look at that size of organization. We're only going to look at when those people responded. And they threw a lot of data away in my yeah. perspective. Yep. Yeah, I don't know if it felt that way to you. But I started feeling a little queasy about it at that point. 
Yeah, I because I, I saw that they, like, part of it that made sense is you had to have participated in both years. So, like, there, there were some things where I was a bit like, okay, I kind of get what they're getting at. Yeah. But again, it the more I read through it, yeah. the more it yeah. felt like it was a representation of how difficult of a topic this is to study right. yeah. and provide answers on. Because yeah. even if yeah. you just say, like, you know, women and... Uh, groups that have been historically like marginalized like what is what is the criteria for those individuals and how they identify and express themselves because even if you just take that as a a group to look at there's so much diversity within that group how can i can tell you a place that i'm embarrassed i mean to be honest when i was working on my master's thesis this would be like 90 this would be like 1993 I wanted to control for race, looking at job search decisions. I wanted to control for what race they were. And I can remember making it like white and non-white. And like putting that in there as let's go to dichotomous variable and using that as a control. Looking at that now, I am embarrassed about that because the, <laughs> the assumption that's built right into that is there's the white ones and then all the other ones. It's so deeply embarrassing. But like in 1993, it's something that was done. Now, this paper, which is, whatever, 20 years later, it's more sophisticated, but they're still running into that same wall. Yeah. They're still saying that you have to lump people into these categories in order to do the research. And those categories act like everybody in that group is the same. Yeah. It's, it's, it's statistically, you have to do it, but realistically, it's not right. That's tricky. Yeah. That's really, even with, honestly, in 10 more years, if we look back at like gender right here, they're acting like there's men and there's women. Well, we kind of know it's not quite that simple. So 10 years ago, that seemed like a good decision. Today, we're looking at that and saying, yeah, but I mean, how do they identify? You know, what's their orientation? And here it's just men and women dichotomous variable. Yeah. That's really interesting, isn't it? Uh, so they were, so they were, they were asking. They had these questionnaires. They they were looking at the employee involvement, and I, I guess essentially, does that lead to more organizational innovation? innovation? Um, so were there standout things from the results that yeah. Yeah. I guess kind of like caught you? Because they yeah. were quite open in yeah. terms of we found this, yeah. Yeah. we didn't find this. Exactly. Most of it didn't work. Yeah. Um, you know, let's talk about the money shot. Go for it. Let let me just, let's start with the thing that did work. And probably, if I'm honest, this is what got the paper published. So there's this one finding that is at high levels of employee involvement, the simple slope between, and that just means the relationship, the association between uh, ratio ethnic diversity and innovation was substantially larger when there was lots of variation in involvement. That's the thing that they actually found. Now, even to say that is kind of complex because it means there's a lot of things that have to be met in order to get the relationship to work. It's not just that there is diversity leading to innovation. It also means that you have to have a lot of employee involvement and that employee involvement has to go the whole way down throughout the organization. Yeah. That's a lot of ifs line up in a row. It's a lot of ifs, and it's also a lot of ifs in a world in which the way that we work is changing. So, like, I guess, like, if I think about 
a, a different age in which the output of your work was how many turnips you pulled from the ground and put into the wagon, then a lot of the diversity areas wouldn't matter because what you wanted from your your team essentially was this X amount of weight of I don't know, vegetables yeah, or something. Yeah. But like, I guess if we're looking at different organizations where there's a complexity to the product now, so it's a bit like, mm. what print do we want on the t-shirt? How do we want this film to close? That's right. Like, you know, what should be on the menu in terms of like, you know, all of a sudden now, what you require yes. from individuals, yes. if you have individuals who are on the shop floor or who are like, you know, uh, more customer service, uh, customer service facing, mm-hmm. customer mm-hmm. facing, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> but <laughs> all of a sudden, the value now yeah. that that individual has in terms of their, exp- that the role that they play between the production of something right. and how it's received by, by the, the consumer, yeah. all of us, the value in that explodes in terms of the knowledge that they have of how individuals that's are engaging so with what it is yep. that we actually yes. do. And even, that's interesting, even those individuals engaging with the final customer, yeah. like the way that you interact with them, the way that you might customize the solution around their particular needs and interests, the change and the rate of change of what we're producing because the world keeps changing and the tastes of the world keep changing. Yeah. This, these topics are becoming increasingly important. Yeah. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I, I feel like this paper was a great lead into that, but it shows how tricky it is, at least for me, to believe in these results. Like today, in today's world of publication, you would have to replicate this. Yeah. If you have one of these, what's called a three-way interaction, that's a, and, and it's based on a lot of decisions you made about how to code the data, you'd really want to replicate that to put a lot of faith and trust into it. Yeah. And I guess that's where we need to go. I think that we we have to get to the point where we're testing some of these things like once in the field like this one, maybe once in the lab, where you kind of have a lot more controlled conditions and you tweak the amount of involvement and you you manipulate the amount of diversity. Yep. That's what it's going to take to push this into the level of like really understanding that this is a robust phenomenon. But, you know, even just walking through this with you on this talk, it shows how many, it feels like landmines and potholes and tripwires. It isn't, it isn't as easy to just sit here and talk about this because of how many, like how many words it takes to say the thinking. Like here, <laughs> yeah. here's the thing. It would be so easy if it was just like more diversity gives you more innovation. Yeah. All done. Right. It doesn't seem quite that simple at all. It doesn't seem quite that simple. And another thing which they uh, covered, which, you know, before we do touch this bad boy down, which was this, the balance of the relationship between groups who have been historically, I guess, deprivileged yeah. Yeah. <laughs> versus the that, that relationship yeah. plus the relationship with the group that have been privileged. Yeah. So there, there seems to be this, and I guess it's what I would call an ideal society, but there's a reliance on one another because you need individuals who have the power mm. and the privilege also have the say so. So if you get a group of diverse individuals, there needs to be this bridge of language and understanding where they are able to communicate their idea to the individual who needs to understand it and sign off on it. So mm-hmm. it's so like mm-hmm. I guess you, you kind of get what get where I'm kind I of do. getting at where you have this group who are the decision makers 
they also lack the understanding. Exactly. So it's like you, you could present yes. great innovative ideas. You need to do so in a way where that group doesn't feel threatened because there is an insecurity there mm. and a threat mm. where all of a sudden, mm. all of the great ideas are not coming from us. Yeah. What is our value now? But also in a way in which they understand it and are able to say, yes, we now approve this and because we, we are- that. And we support it. That's right. That's right. Guess we're looking for those kind of organizations today, aren't we? <laughs> right? No, I know. Well, hopefully, hopefully, it, without us breaking down the science of this one, hopefully listeners who are in organizations that are concerned about the values of diversity and innovation, hopefully this can lead to conversations within organizations because part of the problem is well, part of the solution is exposure to difference does seem to make people a lot more comfortable about the difference. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And within every organization, mm -hmm. there will be unique elements to their culture and what it is that they're attempting to do. And hopefully part through listening to this is that embracing of the conversation yes, yes. where it's not what do we do to individuals, like not, not what do we do to them in terms of like bringing them in and extracting their ideas, but how does it become more of a equal relationship right. in which people are working together and it's not this group give us your ideas yeah. because now we're being kind and generous to you, but actually we value you as individuals and want to work in a complementary fashion for innovation <laughs> how about that <laughs> i love it goodness me <laughs> thank you for working through this article with me i um i got a lot out of it and i i think that for example here's another thing the way that they coded um for instance the the gender you know male female it didn't have any effect even with all those interactions and all that teasing it and looking it, there was just no effect there whatsoever so to me that kind of implies like did we measure that right and is it more about identity and less about whether it's male or female yeah anyway thanks for working through this the with complexity me. continues <laughs> but Dan and I are going to get out of here thanks for rocking with us once again listeners and enjoy the rest of your very complex and diverse lives Bye.